Hi there, and welcome to the Rashcast with Jake and John. And this week, for today only, or maybe more, I don't know, uh, we have a another guest. This is a, an intro that's really going nowhere, but you know him from a. Uh, from Japers Rink, I know him from Michigan Law School. Uh, he hosts the Japers Rink podcast. He is also an ardent baseball fan. Introduce yourself to the world, Greg Young. Yeah, well, Jacob, I mean, you missed the uh, you missed the key, which is uh, you actually um, lived in my room for three months. I did. I lived in your room for three months, and you are the first person I met who, independently of having met me, knew me from Twitter.com. Which yes. Is an inauspicious way to start a friendship, but uh, so the Washington Nationals, after winning on Wednesday to advance to the National League Championship Series on Friday night, they got seven and two thirds no hit innings from Anibal Sanchez before a bloop single from Jose Martinez broke up his no hit bid. The Nationals won that game two to nothing to take a one to nothing advantage in the series. Then on Saturday, Max Scherzer started, went six no hit innings before a bloop single or a line drive single that dropped in front of Juan Soto led to the end of his no hit bid. He followed that by striking out Marcelo Zuna, getting. Uh, Yadier Molina to ground into a double play. Seven innings, 101 pitches, one hit, no runs. The Nationals won that game 3-1. to one. So in Bush Stadium, they allowed four hits, one run, and they won two games. And they now come back home to D.C. with Steven Strasburg on the mound and a 2-0 series lead. They, they now enter as... Prohibitive favorites. Yeah, they have about 85% on a chance of winning the World Series. I'm not winning the World Series, making the World Series on uh, 538. Um, And, I mean, we texted about this two days ago when the Nats were 60% favorites to win, or 56% favorites uh, to make it the World Series. And you told me, imagine going from 19, or I mean, not imagine, but going from 19 to 31 to 56% chance favorites to make the World Series. Now 85% chance favorites to make the World Series. It's just, I, I don't know, it's incredible. I mean, this team, we've, we've talked about this many times in the past, but this team has rallied, rallied from the dead and now is two wins away at home from making the World Series. All they have and, to do is win two out of three at home against a team that they are better than. And yeah. they've shut down. I mean, they're clearly better than two. Yes. It's it's not that close. It's, it's. I mean, they've dominated the first two games. Yesterday's game, you know, the offense was a little stifled, mainly because one Wainwright was locating his curveball. And you pair that with the sun, you know, it, it was almost impossible to hit him because you couldn't get the spin on the curveball. So just because he was throwing the curveball in the zone a lot, it was nearly impossible for the batters to hit. And once the shadows carried over, the offense started hitting him, you know, paired with him getting tired and leaving and – Schilt leaving him in for too long. But you got to say, you got to give credit to Michael A. Taylor for giving the Nats that early lead. Uh, yeah, that felt Michael big, Ta- didn't it? Right? Yeah, I mean, it was huge. Yeah. Yeah. The way it's, that. I mean, Scherzer with a lead is just a different pitcher, you know? 
it's not just that Scherzer had the lead. I mean, listen, Scherzer was, and, and by his own admission, not particularly sharp over the first four innings of that game. He said that his, his elbow, his arm felt tight, his shoulder tightened up early in the game. He couldn't really get fastball location. But because of the shadows and because Max Scherzer, even without fastball command, is still an incredibly hard pitcher to hit, he managed to weather those four innings. The Nats had the lead throughout that time. And then by the time Scherzer locked it in in the fifth, you know, the Nats had that lead and, and he, they were set up to have Scherzer go those three more innings, finish seven, and then go to their two good relievers. Uh, and Patrick Corbin. Yeah. It's just, you know, the Nationals, their only game plan that would work for the playoffs is limit the bullpen as much as possible and, you know, get enough offense to win games. And that's exactly how it's worked out. I mean, even on Friday when they didn't have Daniel Hudson, you know, you, you hope that either the Nats score a bunch of runs or that by some miraculous, you know, turn of events, Anibal Sanchez throws a gem. And that's exactly what one of those two things happened. Anibal Sanchez miraculously threw a gem. Yeah, I mean that was incredible. That was yeah. like it was that was something to watch him. You know, I think it, it's kind of like I, I think Jacob, you had this tweet. It's like the art of pitching. Sometimes you know is I I sometimes like you hear people say it and you roll your eyes, but I mean it was just masterful. Like he was locating most like mostly everything he was you know throwing what he wanted for strikes and not for strikes when he needed to it seemed like he was kind of taking advantage of a cardinals lineup that at times seemed kind of in between his pitches if that makes sense you know and uh man oh man that was just something and then to go from that to max scherzer you know even if his fastball command wasn't great which it wasn't you know and he was able to kind of throw his curveball and change for strikes when he had to um but man, that's like that's quite a contrast to say nothing about dealing with the shadows while that was all happening. So, uh, you know, I mean, those two things can make a bat make a mediocre lineup look downright terrible, and that's I think probably what happened. Yeah, and it only gets better. I mean, I, I don't know if it gets better, but now we have Strasburg going game three, and you know, one of the things that the Cardinals are going to have to do to counteract their putrid offense is is put some new guys in. I, I fully expect to see Jose Martinez in the lineup tomorrow. But the problem with Martinez is that he's an awful, awful defender. And that's one of the things that the Cardinals, you know, they have the edge on in this series. If you read any articles, they say, oh, their defense is is, is very good. But they're going to have to put Martinez in. He's the only one who's had good at-bats this entire series. He had two good at-bats. I mean, that bat against Doolittle yesterday was, you know, a fantastic battle. And, you know, Taylor on that misplay, it's, it's a hard play for him to read because he took such a bad swing and still was able to hit the ball so hard. Well, plus at that time of day, uh, the sun was down. It was dark, which meant that Taylor and and Eaton, uh, who made up for it with a a great lunging play, really couldn't get reads on the ball. Mm -hmm. But more than that, uh, you you brought up defense. And the interesting thing to me so far about the Cardinals' defense in this series has been, as contrasted with the Dodgers, the Cardinals do not shift aggressively. And, and it was interesting during the Dodgers series. I can't remember the shift burning the Dodgers more than maybe once. Uh, there was a play in game four when Trey Turner hit a ground ball right to the second base yeah. hole. That, Taylor running. Right, that moved Taylor to third uh, and set up a, a Nats rally. 
but beyond that, it, it seemed like they took away a lot more hits than. Yeah, did Kurt Suzuki have a couple of ones, if I remember yeah. off the top of my head, that like you were like, oh, wait, it, it always, that's the frustrating part about the shift as a fan is you, you hit the ball and you're like, oh, that's going to be a hit, and then it's not. You know, yeah. and I, I would imagine as a player, that's probably frustrating too. Yeah, the Dodgers did a really good job of shifting for their game plan. Uh, we talked about this a little bit on an earlier episode about how with Kershaw pitching, um, and him using stuff to go inside on righties, um, they really tried to shift, you know, three guys in, on the left side of the infield right. in order to take advantage of that, and it worked really well. They got Kurt Suzuki to ground a couple double plays. They got Howie Kendrick to hit some ground balls. And even the RBI single that Howie Kendrick hit in that second game was right where they thought it would be. It just managed to find the smallest of small holes to get through to the outfield. So they, they had a really good defensive game plan going for them. Um in that series, unfortunately, Dave Roberts outmanaged himself or, you know, played himself. Right. Um, but the difference is with the, with the Cardinals is, yeah, I haven't really seen as many shifts. And um, I, I can recall at least in game one, I think there were four or five Nats hits that were seeing eye ground balls that would have otherwise been stopped by a shift. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, I, I can't remember a single really good defensive play the Cardinals have made in the, na- the last two days, but I can remember four or five balls that in the Dodgers series would have been outs turned into hits. So I, I don't know that that's that huge advantage. Uh, I think that you're right that obviously Martinez has to be in the lineup. The The mm. Cardinals are already playing a right fielder out of position in, in Tommy Edmond who is a third baseman by trade. Uh, It'll be interesting to see. I I would imagine that they'd probably take Carpenter out of the lineup. I was going to ask you about that. Like, I mean, because, man, like, his at-bats just haven't... I mean, yeah, like, he had the one where he was 3-0 against Scherzer, and then Scherzer just did Scherzer things. But That was an amazing at-bat. He hasn't, like... Have you been overly impressed by Matt Carpenter's at bats? I mean, I've well, been overly impressed by anyone's at bats. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Besides Jose Martinez, they have four the hits in two games. I don't <laughs> yeah, think anyone's yeah, yeah. having great yeah. at bats. But like, I mean, in Matt Carpenter in particular, I mean, like they had this whole thing about like you know, oh, he's like the guy who they have in the lineup because he can hit, and like I, yeah, I don't think he looked very good. You know, I mean, like I mean, one... again, like none of them have looked good, but like Matt Carpenter in particular, I've like noted as being like, man, like he's just not taking very good swings. I mean, this season he's just had a terrible year just as, as a whole, and they thought you know he's a he's had some big postseason hits for them in the past, you know. But I think it's time. I mean, Edmund has had a better postseason than him just in general, and you'd rather keep him. I mean, if you look at the way Carpenter just throws the baseball, just he kind of like sticks it out and looks really uncomfortable in his hand. There was the first I think the first play that Trey Turner hit was right to to Carpenter, and he made he got the out, but it just looked like I thought the ball was just going to squirt out of his hand when he when he threw it. I think, you know, losing Carpenter, and Carpenter no way plays game four because it's a lefty and Corbin. Right. But I think you got to you put Martinez in right, and then you kind of neutralize that by putting Edmund at third, kind of get um, get that, because uh, Edmund's a good defensive third baseman. Um, mm-hmm. And then you even might even put Bader in center now with taking Fowler out because you want to neutralize, you know, Martinez's crappy defense in right. Well, and Fowler's crappy-ish defense in center. There was a yeah, in the the Nats two-run rally yesterday, there was a fly ball off the bat of Trey Turner that Fowler was very slow to get to. It probably falls no matter what, but but it, it's still 
Dexter Fowler was moved to right field a couple of years ago, and he's never been a plus defensive center fielder, except, you know, I always had this theory about Dexter Fowler. Fowler always played in these vast, expansive center fields when he went to, you know, he started his career in Colorado, then he went to Houston, and he always had terrible defensive metrics. He went to Chicago, which has one of the smallest center fields in baseball, and his defensive metrics improved drastically. And now he's in uh, in St. Louis, which has a normal-sized defensive center field, and it looks like he can't handle the position anymore. Uh, that's just an aside, but the point is that Bader may not be a great hitter, and he may not be a great matchup against Strasburg, but there is an argument to be made if you're going to be deprioritizing offense in one place or deprioritizing defense in one place in favor of offense to switch in Bader. It's not like Fowler has shown much offensively in these two games anyway. No, and I mean that one at bat in particular in the eighth inning against Doolittle. Right. Like, man, oh, man. You know, I mean, like, I— it, it, I, that would ha- I would have had to been like infuriated if I was a Cardinals fan because I mean maybe you finally have a Nats pitcher on the ropes and then just like first pitch you know yeah. I mean this postseason he's he's three for 20, uh, 29. so <laughs> it's not like he's really providing that much uh, at the plate and with mediocre defense you know and bringing in a terrible defender in Jose Martinez you're probably better off with uh with putting Vader in center. Yeah, yeah and, I, and what is Bader going to do? Not hit like the rest <laughs> of their lineup? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. He'll fit right in. I mean, it's just so interesting. You know, the Cardinals offense had that brigade at the beginning of, of game four or Barrage. five against the Braves, where they Sorry. scored 10 runs, and then they scored three more runs the next two innings, and then nothing until the eighth inning yesterday. Um, and the eighth just, inning run was a gift. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, you know, it's going to be, there's no. Flaherty versus Strasburg is going to be a low-scoring affair, um, which gives the edge to the Cardinals if they can get one or two runs. But you know that's a you know that might be a big task for them because they weren't able to get one two runs off of they got to get one run on, in two games off of our last two starters, and this is probably our best postseason starter we have in Strasburg. I, I think we need to give a little bit more love. I mean, we talked about it briefly, Sanchez and Scherzer, but. The way that Anibal Sanchez pitched, first of all, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, Greg alluded to a thread that I made on Twitter uh, the day after the start, and what I meant by that was, in the modern era, I mean, there are still pitchers who have low velocity, but the, the way that Sanchez pitched, not so much his first postseason start when he struck out nine and the butterfly changeup was working for him. But the way that he pitched on Friday night was a throwback in the best way because he didn't really have any of his off-speed pitches. It was too cold to really control his, his butterfly changeup. I mean, he got some outs on it, but he also hit Yadier Molina with it. He wasn't effective with it. It wasn't really an out pitch. The... The way that he largely survived in that game was with his three different kinds of fastball. And none of them move spectacularly well. It's not like he has a, a Greg Maddox-type sinker. It's not like he has a cutter like 
a Mariano Rivera cutter that bores in on lefties. It's not like his four-seam fastball breaks 91 miles an hour with regularity. But he survived in that game by hitting corners, moving the ball six to eight inches off the barrel of the bat, getting weak contact. I mean, it, it was pitching. And it was yeah. just, it was a brilliant performance that is sort of emblematic of the fact that the Nats have this veteran starting pitching staff. Obviously, Max Scherzer does not need to game plan like Anibal Sanchez. He still has amazing stuff. He has better stuff. And I was watching some highlights of him from 2011, from the 2011 playoffs. He has better stuff now than he did then. Mm-hmm. But... Isn't like this is like one of the highest velocity like years of his career? This is the highest velocity year of his career at age 35. That's nuts. And That's like insane. <laughs> in the wild card game, he had five fastballs of over 99 miles an hour. Yeah. It's an, it's an inspiration. Which is probably not where he should be sitting, really. No, it definitely is not where he should be sitting. And that's what happens when he's overamped is that he hits too fast and then he can't locate. But I think we saw in that last Dodger start with Scherzer – and him kind of controls emotions and really, you know, was able to throw 95, 96 again and hit his spots. And I think yesterday he was just kind of rusty at first, Scherzer, but he really settled down and really found his groove. I mean, he said so. And by the end of the game, he looked very vintage Scherzer. Um, and it wasn't, I don't think it was him being overamped either in the first few innings. Yeah. Can but, I, can I bring up one more point with Sanchez too, about what he was doing that was smart, which was, I mean, the thing is that, I mean, you remember the early at-bat with Ozuna, right? Where he hit that one that was, like, pretty hard and, like, goes out a lot of the time, but didn't. And, I mean, what was going on was the ball was dying in the outfield. Mm-hmm. Like, that entire game, there was stuff that just, it was going to be This entire really... postseason, man. Yeah, They, they exactly. dejuiced the baseball. Yeah, I mean, it was, everything was four and a half feet shorter than it should, uh, you know, whatever yeah. that, that Cardinals quote is. But, um, you know, I... You know, you think you you see that though, and you're like, oh wow, he hit that really hard, and it still was like a pretty routine. You know, I mean, it was at the edge of the warning track, but you see that, and you know, you're like, yeah, you don't need to have a nine, ten strikeout game. You can be very effective, and you know, just be able to miss bats enough because stuff is going to go out to die in center field, and you got you know a really good uh, defensive center fielder in there. Yeah, but also I think it was really interesting uh, with Sanchez is that he had a completely different game plan in this start than he did against the Dodgers start and kind of looked like a different pitcher, you know, using his fastball mostly as opposed to that using that butterfly curveball, probably mostly because he didn't have the curveball. But still, you changing your game plan like that and keeping the, the hitters guessing and not really being able for them to game plan is also, you know, genius well, when you can be this two different type of pitcher. Um, the, card, the Dodgers especially struggle off breaking stuff you know, that's their big weakness, and that's why Strasburg did so well on his first start is because he used his breaking stuff, and why he did well better is because he found it. And that's what Sanchez did really well was using his breaking stuff and his curveball uh, effectively in the Dodgers series. Now against the Cardinals, I think he, he was able to, you know, pitch off the fastball and was kind of a different pitcher and had a completely different game plan. And just, you know, it's, it's really smart to kind of, if you're able to do this, use different stuff. You know, when you have 12 pitches, you can be able to use different stuff and be effective with half the stuff. Well, and you, you talk about changing your game plan, and, and you look at Max Scherzer, and I don't think we talked about this on the podcast after Game 4. We should have, 
Max Scherzer, for the first time, I think, in, in his career, actually came out of for game four with a completely different approach for the first three or four innings, and it was intentional. He was trying mm-hmm. to stay in the ball game, and he was allowing himself to pitch to contact on a cold and windy night, hoping that the contact would be hit right at people or it wouldn't go out of the yard. And if he needed strikeouts, he could get them. He's trying to keep that pitch count low. He was pitching very un-Max Scherzer-like. And that's the kind of adjustment in an incredibly big, important elimination game that a younger starting pitcher, a less established starting pitcher, might not feel comfortable doing. But Scherzer went out and he made an adjustment, not based on anything that was or wasn't working for him, but based on what his team needed, which was, it was just brilliant. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, look, the, the the amount of starting pitchers that you can see in baseball that can do that, you can count, I think, on probably like one or two hands, yeah. right? I mean, because that's, think about that. That's just an insanely difficult thing to do. I mean, you have like starting pitchers are such weirdos and they, they have such, you know, mechanized and routine oriented and everything like that. And so the idea that he could completely change the way he was pitching to, you know, to pitch to contact and say, yeah, I'm going to probably, you know, take a few miles off and be able to have control and everything like that is just, that's insane. And I mean, to give a little bit of credit to a Cardinals pitcher too, like, Adam Wainwright, I think, had a really smart game plan, too, because, I mean, you look at it and, you know, you look at the shadows and everything like that, and you have a really good curveball, and, you know, you're going to throw that a lot because it's going to be really tough to square it up. So I think you get a couple of veteran starting pitchers who can kind of pitch to the situation and circumstance, and, yeah, I mean, like what Max Scherzer did there, kind of like what, you know, in a a way of kind of like what Adam Wainwright did, I think, in their own ways was impressive. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to be impressed. Wainwright, for the first seven innings of the game, made one mistake. Uh, he threw a cutter yeah, first pitch to Taylor that he hung. Yeah. And kudos to Michael A. Taylor. Zim, but Zim missed it. That's true. Yeah. He did. He hung yeah. Kudos yeah. to playoff Michael A. Taylor. I oh, yeah. He's live and well, baby. <laughs> the only yeah. Michael A. Taylor I recognize. Can we, can we talk about how little sense that makes, by the way? <laughs> Like, <laughs> that makes that makes no goddamn sense, right? No. Like, I mean, you have Michael A. Taylor during the regular season, like who just cannot lay off a breaking ball to save his freaking life, right? Yeah. Like, and I mean, yeah, he swung and missed it some, like of course he has, but like you know, I mean, he's been able to lay off a couple. You he's know, put together and, some really good at bats. You know, he yeah. worked back. I don't know if it was game one or game two, but he worked. He was, I think it was game one. He was down 0-2, worked back a full count, hit a ball well to center. It was a flyout, but he still had a great at bat, and that's something you rarely see from Taylor. Is a good at that. Yeah. Yeah. He just seems calm. You know, like he, like, I mean, the, the, the weirdest example of that was the game winning catch of the, uh, oh, hey, look what I found kind of thing. But, <laughs> that's uh, classic Taylor. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, like, I mean, for whatever reason, it works for him. And that's hilarious and great. And that's why the postseason's fun, right? How, yeah. How, I mean, my question is now going forward, how well does Michael Taylor have to play this postseason to get tendered a contract for next year? I, I don't think it matters. <laughs> I don't think he can be tendered a contract. Oh. It's, so this is it's sad. Son. He might still come back, just not at three and a half million dollars. Mm. Yeah. I mean, the Nets, the Nets still could use him as a fifth outfielder that they can. A lot of teams somewhere. could. Yeah, that's true. And he's got. I mean, he's 28 now, but he does. People still talk about him in prospect terms for a reason. He looks like he's a ch- got. He looks like a because, child. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he's like 16. Uh huh. Definitely but, can't grow a beard. No. 
but also because he has five tools and, and you look at him and you say, if he ever put it together, he would be, I mean, with his defense already providing so much value, if he minimally put it together, you know, was a league average bat, cut down the strikeouts by three or 4%, kept it under 30%, he would be an extraordinarily useful player. He'd be a, a first division regular. I was like, wasn't that like the path to like, if I remember Mike Cameron correctly? Yeah, that's it, the cop that he got a ton. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, of just like, yeah, but I mean, but at the same time, it's it's also tantalizing too, right? Because you you want to say, I'm the one that's going to teach him not to swing at a, you know, O2 like slider in the dirt. And, you know, it's I, it's just like one of those things. It's, it's easier said than done. I mean, maybe you need to get some like hypnosis to where he always thinks he's in the postseason or something. You know? <laughs> it's a great idea. Yeah, it's permanently like a cooling chamber, so he thinks it's uh, October. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, isn't it like when, when I think it was Tim Duncan, they, uh, and it was like he was like awful at free throws during the playoffs. They offered to like try to hypnotize him or like, I think there was some like bizarre like San Antonio hypnotist that offered to do that. Uh, I think he turned him down tragically, but mm. uh, hey, you know, hey man, do, do what you got to do. Yeah, exactly. Put your team on your back and go to that hypnotist. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. That's where you thought this was going as a podcast, right? Oh, yeah. Like that was obviously the anecdote that I expected in my brain to come up with was a, you know, we just need a hypnotist for a Michael A. Taylor. Uh huh. I definitely thought when we started this podcast in February that the quote, put the team on your back and go to the hypnotist would be said at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, one other thing I want to talk about is Ryan Zimmerman. Ryan. Uh, just the fact that he gets to be a part of this run, gets to perform at a high level during this run. I mean, the catch that he made on Friday night was, was like something... Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. His quote about it was, it was a playoff time machine catch. It was a throwback. To, I mean, you, if you squinted and hit the mirror flip button on your TV, you could have pretended it was 2006. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was. I mean, it's something I've always said about Zim. So his glove ain't broke. It's no, it's just is. the arm. <laughs> He's got a barbacoa shoulder of a right arm. Yeah, but I mean, he can, can still play. You know, with that glove, he makes great picks at first. He, um, you know, makes diving plays like that. He, yeah, it's great that he's still part of this run. Um, you know, who knows if the Nats do win, make the World Series, and maybe if they win it. You know, maybe he goes out on the high note and decides not to try again next year. But I think he'll be back still. Um, but it's still great that he's really, you know, when David Wright was a part of that run in 15 for the Mets, that was really special for Mets fans. And this is similar to that. Um, and, I mean, he's playing pretty well, too. Oh, yeah. Right? You know, like, he's not he's not really, like, oh, it's not one of those where, like, you know, he's there, and but, you know, he's kind of a bench player. Yet, yet. No, he's, like, played a key role. I mean, he clearly, I think, deserves to be in the starting nine, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, Nats are 5-0 and when he starts. Yeah. So uh, why not, you know? They're also 5-0 and when they wear the blue jerseys. Yeah, so, so what's the Hard real... to tell which one is causing it. Uh-huh. They, I mean, they clearly just need to keep wearing those in D.C., right? <laughs> oh, they will. They're great jerseys. It's a yeah, great they're look. gorgeous. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. they're their work blues. Or their dress blues. Their dress blues. Their uh-huh. navy dress blues. But, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think got... I'm in favor of making... Well, it's tricky because, I mean, like they have all, like, the red imagery. But, man, I would just love that to be, like, their normal unis. Well, I saw a leaked or it may have been doctored image of a red version of those and it looked pretty slick like they could go with those as well i like 
the script nationals as opposed to the curly w which is bland and reminds you of walgreens and not that interesting i mean it, it's yeah. it's stolen directly from a non-memorable 1970s senators team uh the cool thing that the nats did in spring training was they sort of revived a 1950s version of a senator's logo uh with the capital behind the straight w oh i saw that that was cool I those are great those are great they're really they good i would be i mean i love the interlocking dc as a primary logo but if they're not going to do that they should do something with the capital it's a cool look. i mean the, the the caps the caps winter classic jersey the one that they did at home had a similar kind of idea to it mm-hmm. yeah i remember that they, they i remember you know when that happened they were getting a lot of comps of the senators jerseys yeah uh, but uh, speaking of the caps, you know, there's something we, you know, we have a caps reporter on the podcast, right? And um, this is kind of a revenge tour for the Nats too. Um, you know, the Caps when they won the Stanley Cup, they took down some some pl- past playoff foes, most notably the Penguins. And I mean, right now the Nats are taking down the Dodgers already, who they've uh, lost to in 2016. They're t- up two nothing on the Cardinals. I mean, do you see any parallels between this team and the, the Caps? Of, yeah, uh, it's hard not to, right? I mean, and I think it's it's the big thing with the Caps, too, is that, I mean, they always got, they did okay in terms of getting past the first round. It was always obviously the second round that was the tricky part. And mm-hmm. once that happened, I mean, with the Kuznetsov goal against the Penguins, you could just tell, and that's what, like, what all the reporting is, and you could just see it, that the team just played a lot looser, you know, and they looked so much better afterwards. And... I mean, that's the one of the big comps that I'm seeing is that, I mean, just beating that team in the first round, just, I mean, you know, and I, I don't even know if, if you want to say the wild card game or against the Dodgers was kind of the, the curse being lifted or whatever. You know, I don't, I don't really know which one it was, but I mean, either way, it just, you know, I mean, athletes are human too, right? You know, and it's like, it's, it's got to be a bit stressful, even if none of them are going to admit it, to just have that kind of legacy as a franchise as something that, you know, we're always going to be right there and just whatever reason weird things happen and we don't get it, you know. I, I You think that, that, so that's one parallel I would note. And then the other one is that, I mean, for the Nats, every time that they've made the postseason before this year, they've been pretty much, like, favored to either go on a run or do something, you know, at least get past the first round. And so I think, like, once they won game four, and really pretty much after game two, the pressure was on the Dodgers. And it was pretty much from the start. I mean, you had 106-win team, you know, and, like, the Nats just weren't ever really the clear favorite at any point. And, you know, that's that can affect a, that can affect a team, and it can affect players. You know, it just can. And so you look at that, and then the Caps, it was kind of similar. You know, the Caps had, when they went on their run, they had the two-year window that had, you mm-hmm. know, that was gone and you know they had to get rid of a bunch of their players and they went into the postseason thinking you know oh like there's the pressure isn't really on them anymore and so i mean it's also tricky because you say that and it's very narrative heavy and at the same time i'm also a stat person and you're thinking oh well you know the weighted sports number generator you know like uh maybe that's just maybe we're trying to make something out of nothing but i you know the closer i've gotten to it the more you realize like athletes are people too and so, yeah, like, you know, they, you know, are great and elite at, you know, getting, blocking that stuff out. But they're 
it affects them more than than I think they'd choose to let on. And so I think getting past the first round and just kind of like really, you know, they're playing fast and loose and fun and, you know, they're playing good, smart baseball. And uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, it's tough for me to say that, you know, having a big moment like that didn't affect them because I think, of course, it did. And I mean, the, the, the reality is they're playing with house money right now. And I think as long as they're able to kind of keep and narrow that, you know, I think they're in great shape. Yeah, I, I think you touched on it a little, but the caps, like you said, were, you know, the big phrase that everyone was using was they're in year three of a two-year window. Uh, and the Nats are maybe not in that same exact position, but at the same time, we're talking about the first year without Bryce Harper, where they'd had a massive disappointment with him. They had, or, well, didn't have to let him go, but they did let him go. Uh, the team, for the first time maybe in this entire contention window, was not the consensus pick to win the division. Uh, and they didn't win the division. But no, they did not. That's irrelevant uh, <laughs> because the Braves got eliminated and the Nats are still playing. Good riddance. Yeah, I, I don't miss them. No. But, no, because I also I think the Braves actually might have been. I mean, easy to say now that the Nats have a two two zero lead, but I think they might have been a tougher matchup. Than the oh Nats yeah, the Braves that. were probably the worst matchup in the National League for the Nats, even worse than the Dodgers. I think the so the Nats only beat the Dodgers in a five game series, but in a five game series, the Nats were maybe not favorites, but only slight underdogs, despite the fact that they were a hundred and you know, a 13-win worse team. Uh, and that's because they had Scherzer and Strasburg and, and Corbin and Sanchez. They had the pitching staff, and they could use them in relief, uh, and they could neutralize a lot of the Dodgers' advantages over the course of a short series. The Braves, in a long series, were a much tougher matchup for the Nats than the Dodgers in a short series. But... Regardless, uh, you look at this team, you know, they went 19 and 31 in their first 50 games, and the whole season has sort of, from that point, felt like playing with house money. Now, I've sort of pushed against that because the truth is that the Nets aren't really playing with house money. They've got a lot of players, you know, they've got Rendon and Strasburg who may not come back. Uh, they've got players who are beat up, who are becoming a year older. You know, Scherzer, uh, even if Strasburg does come back, no guarantee he's going to throw 200 innings again. Uh, so they've got, you know, this. I don't want to say this is their last run, but this might be their best shot in a while. So I've tried to push back against that. But the truth is, this season, from the time when they were 19 and 31, has felt like they've been playing with house money. So it's been hard to sort of put pressure on the team because it feels like found money every time they won a game. And mm -hmm. so in that respect, I do feel like it's somewhat analogous to the Caps. Yeah. Uh, I think there's probably a tendency to overpush that narrative because we're all DC sports fans and people like to see images of success in another team. Uh, but regardless, I think some of the, the narrative I, I will is say there. This. And I, 
I will say this. I, I think, you know, with the sim the biggest similarity to me is this the idea that they both got over the hump in the same year and then immediately after have looked very loose. I think what I agree with what Greg said there. Um, you know, both these franchises have been plagued by playoff misery and coming up short every time and, and choking. And this team, you know, was able to get over that hump and so was that Capitals team in 2018. And I think that is a very similar narrative of because they they were very similar similarly plagued as teams in the fact that they would always lose in moments that they should have won, and so coming in and and winning um, has winning the first game and winning the first series was automatically flipped the script and um, um, changed how team is perceived and how they perceive themselves and this i said this last night um to a friend of mine but i think this is the most optimistic i've ever felt about baseball in my life yeah um, there's there's this is why i'm so excited to go to the game tomorrow uh it's, it's gonna be you, no pressure oh i'm so excited yeah. i i can't I'm going, believe I i'm going to tuesday this. i bought a, a bus ticket down taking a half day from work from new york taking a bus to bus down at two in the afternoon coming into Union Station at 6, and then leaving the next morning to take another bus out at 6.30 in the morning. Hell yeah, that's worth it, 100%. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you're the guys who go to, to Cincinnati on a whim from... Uh... We did, I remember that. <laughs> Not yeah. only did we go to Cincinnati, Greg came from D.C., picked me up in Ann Arbor, and then drove me down to Cincinnati. It was an. Ex I would hope you would remember that it was a yeah. year and a half ago. If you, if that was you, fun. I mean, honestly, that was a great trip. I mean, I used to live in Cincy for a couple of years, and so uh, I was able to give you somewhat of a educated tour guide of the city. It's it's a fun city for a week. It was a it was a fun trip, but uh, Greg and I are already making tentative plans. If I can't find another way to get down for a prospective World Series, I don't want to jinx anything. I'm knocking on wood right now. So am I. There's no wood near me. There's only these faux wood. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's what that's like, Ikea wood, so yeah. it's close enough. Consider it knocked on. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm already making plans with Greg that if I can't get to D.C. any other way, I will take a bus to Columbus where Greg lives, and then Greg and I will drive to D.C., and we'll figure it out from there. Yeah. Is there a bus? To, have we have we resolved it? Is there a bus that goes from Ann Arbor to Columbus? I'm sure. There well, is. worst case scenario, I'll hitchhike. Yeah, there you go. That's, that that's, always that's, works out uh, well. You know, you're you're a white male. How how bad could it go? <laughs> exactly. I've I've got a trustworthy face. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just just don't open your mouth and you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever known me not to open my mouth? Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. One one last thing. Um. Okay. The how great and i don't know why this is the tangent that went into my, my head but whatever um how great was adam eaton's seinfeld quote by the way <laughs> that was fantastic he did yeah. the opposite i watched that episode this morning because he got me in the mood yeah so oh. uh yeah i think do we do we need to give our listeners the background but I, i'll do it real quick basically he was saying what pitch he was expecting from wainwright and then said uh Oh, you know, well, I was thinking fastball, but then I was thinking like the old Seinfeld thing of, well, I need to do, I, I've been wrong about everything so far. So maybe I just need to not trust myself and do the exact opposite. And then it, I, it worked. So, I have to George Costanza. Yeah, yeah, George Costanza. And so uh, one deep cut and two, I love it. So, you know, well, it's not that deep of a cut. That's pretty Not odd. that deep of a cut. But I mean, listen, the Nats have a lot of young players on their roster. Uh, I know Cody Bellinger, who's 
24, uh, didn't know what Seinfeld was. So, Which, I'm, I'm 22 years old, and I know what Seinfeld is. I mean, I watched Seinfeld. Yeah, but you're also an old person at heart. You watch a lot of old television. Well, I'm, I'm an older person than you at heart. Uh, I listen to classic rock and have strong opinions about the youths and how they need to pull up their pants and get jobs. <laughs> but I think on, uh, on that note, let's wrap up this episode. <laughs> That's uh, as good a note as any. Should I, should I plug myself? Is that how, is that how we finish right, this? Let's end this thing with plugs. We're going to open up the plug bag. Oh, wow. All right. Uh, well, you can uh, – thanks thanks, guys for having me. Uh, you can find my stuff at Japer's Rink. Uh, I actually just did a recap of the latest game, and uh, I got some more articles coming out. I'm just got to sit and write them. Um, but uh, you can do that, and then you can find me at my Twitter handle, which is uh, GregY underscore JR. Uh, I have changed it finally after Ooh. all these years. Uh, it used to be Greg Young three, no longer. I have actually changed my name, so wow. it's, it's uh, nice to nice to finally just not have a random number at the end and actually <laughs> have something that makes at least some sense. All right. Well, on that note, we will wrap things up finally. Uh, thank you all for listening. We will be back hopefully <laughs> later this week. If Woo-hoo! you will be back. All right. See episode. you later this week. <laughs> all right. See you guys later.